This episode contains discussions around sexual assault and sexual violence and might be difficult for some listeners. If this topic is triggering, please remember that you are not alone. Contact 1800RESPECT for support. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we're joined by Neeraja Sanmohanadan, a senior sexual assault counsellor, to discuss the topic of sexual assault and sexual violence. Neeraja helps unpack what we as a society do to perpetuate the issue, what access barriers for survivors to share their stories, and what we, specifically in the South Asian community, can do better in regards to this matter. In our last episode, we mentioned that episode 8 would be an interview with Punjabi Aussie rapper Elfressa Lyon. But given the current climate and all the stories that have recently come to light, we've decided to push that episode back a fortnight to give space for this important conversation. Now let's get into it. Neeraja Akka, thank you so much for joining us today. We're grateful for your time, especially on a Saturday afternoon. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really excited to do this. Um, To start off, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Yeah, so my full name is Neeraja Sanmohanathan. I was born in Jaffna, so I identify as a um, Tamil. Um, We migrated to Australia when I was eight, and I am currently working as a senior sexual assault counsellor at RPA Hospital. And then I just finished my doctoral thesis looking at um, post-traumatic stress disorder and intergenerational trauma. Specifically in refugees? right yes exactly yeah in refugees so we are definitely going to get you back on the podcast to talk about your thesis on that yes definitely Definitely. so what um what what sparked your interest in psychology and why did you pursue that as a career yeah i think i wanted to look at how people react to hardships um i wanted to look at mental health and how people cope especially in our community where it's significantly stigmatized um and i think i Early on, I knew I didn't want a desk job. I wanted something where I could speak to people, be more connected. Yeah. So why uh, the sexual assault area specifically? Yeah, I guess I kind of fell into it a little bit. Um, My, you know, initial roles were in child protection and then I went on to do a couple of years in refugee trauma space. Mm -hmm. Um, So I worked at STARTS, um, the New South Wales service for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. Um, And I guess there um, I supported a lot of asylum seekers who had um, a range of experiences in a war-torn context so Mm. that included sexual violence as well so I worked with a lot of men at that stage who um, had experiences of torture and trauma including sexual violence and then that kind of led me to having a greater interest in that topic and then when I saw this senior clinical role come up at RPA I thought let's take it and see where it goes. Mm, Amazing so For people who are listening, um, just to give them some context, could you please define sexual assault? So sexual assault um, is any unwanted touching or sexual acts against someone's will without their consent. Um, It is forced, it's coerced, and sexual assault is a crime. um, And it, it can happen to anyone in our community. It can happen to male or female, any cultural background, um, regardless of your socioeconomic background. And, you know, a lot of people may not want to disclose. So we may not hear about it as much in the community, yeah. but it is it can be quite common. And the other thing is as well, if, if I can quickly address, you know, the whole concept of what we're used to seeing as 
sexual assault um, is so different to the things that we see in the movies or that gets reported often in the media, which is always an act that's quite violent. Um, it often happens by a stranger. It often happens in, you know, you know, bad situations and in inverted commas. Um, so I think what we need to kind of talk about more openly is the fact that research shows that you're more likely to be sexually assaulted by someone you know. Mm. Um, and it can often happen within families. It can often happen in daylight hours. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't always have to happen down an alleyway. Yeah, and it doesn't just come in the form of rape, right? Yeah. It branches far beyond. Mm. Yes, yes, it does. So apart from the physical harm, could you speak a little to what other trauma a survivor might face? Yeah, I think for a lot of people it is an assault on the way they see their world as. So it actively challenges their perception on how safe the world is. Mm. So we often go through life believing that the world is a safe place. We can go through life knowing that you know, if we're hurt, someone will come to us, our aid to help us. Um, so these assumptions that we have about how safe we are in this world is completely challenged. And I think, um, for example, if the perpetrator is a stranger, that shatters your belief around how safe the world is. But let's say the perpetrator is an extended family member. Mm. Um, that shatters your ideas around what family is yeah. and yeah. how safe you are in yeah. your own home. And who you can trust. And who you can trust. So that kind of plays more heavily on more intimate relationships. And that can even yeah. play out in, you know, people having... a great deal of um difficulty trusting other people mm, um exactly and then that would affect especially if you're being assaulted or have been assaulted in a marriage or in a relationship and, and things like that and that affects future relationships and how you interact with you know even if it was like an uncle or, or you know someone from your family it just affects everything moving forward right like yeah. how could you then trust someone afterwards or even get into another relationship and not have have your past kind of lingering yeah I think it's really hard as well in those contexts as well because disclosure and acceptance of that disclosure by family members is really complicated Mm. um, because it then questions other relationships and you know the reality of how to move past that within family and I think if sexual assault is stigmatized, anything that happens in a family setting or extended family mm. setting, it's it, the shame response is even greater. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the secrecy to keep it within that family and not share it, which can be, you know, can be motivated by protecting that young person, for example, who's the survivor. But by keeping it a secret and protecting them, it's also you know, inadvertently contributing to that shame response that we should keep it a secret because it's a bad thing that's, that has happened. Yeah. So we were doing some um, research around sexual assault and it was just mind-boggling the statistics that we saw on the gravity of this topic, you know, even in a country like here in Australia. Um, we saw a stat from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and it said that almost 2 million Australian adults have experienced at least one sexual assault since the age of 15. But, you know, that's just the ones that go reported, mm. right? There's so many more out there that could go unreported as well. And we also saw another stat which was in almost 9 out of 10 incidents, about 87% of the cases, um, women who experienced their most recent aggravated sexual assault by a male 
didn't even contact the police um, in the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, those stats are really scary to sit with. Um, I think what we often see with stats is that we kind of see the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it's really timely to have you on our podcast, Nirajak, uh, mm. given all the, all the other headlines that are happening around the world right now with Sarah Everard and everything going on in the Australian political space. Um, so once again, you know, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, look, I think it's a really great conversation we're having. I think it's an overdue conversation we're having um, and happy to contribute. So Nirajaka, you wrote a really powerful article recently, which was first published on The Conversation and then republished in the ABC, looking at why it is so hard for survivors of sexual assault to come forward and how the ways society re- reacts uh, when people do makes it even harder for them to do so. Um, we'll drop the link to the article in our episode notes and, you know, we really encourage everyone to have a read. Um, so what we really wanted to do was for you to help us better understand what as a general community we need to change to help address the problem and what in South Asian culture perpetuates the issue. Um, but before we unpack it, how did the article actually come about? Yeah, so I remember being online and reading a lot of content around sexual assault And a lot of the materials that I was seeing, you know, was around talking about the alleged perpetrators. Mm. Um, It was around, you know, perspectives that were looking at like the legal side of things. Um, You know, it was quite focused around not what I thought what we should be talking about or what we should also be talking about, which Mm. is around how difficult it is for women um, and men who are assaulted. But in this context, I think we're talking about you know, gender dynamics and power structure, especially that exists in our communities, in in, in our, you know, um, parliament. Um, So I think I just wanted to have another voice, if I could, um, in a small way to contribute to a bigger conversation around, we keep saying, why didn't someone come forward? You know, we question whether something is true or not. Mm. And without realising the very conversations that we tend to have act as barriers to Mm. people coming forward as well. I want to highlight a really beautiful quote from that article, which reads, every survivor who shares a story of sexual assault indirectly speaks to another survivor and gently reminds them that they're not alone. However, every negative response also speaks to a survivor. Yeah, I think the power of stories, um, you know, it's twofold. Mm. One is that it's always positive to share a story and I think when someone comes forward brave enough to share their truth and own it Mm. um, it's the second part of it is how that's received and the implications of that so it's Mm. while you know many people may have a positive experience of sharing it um, that is almost dependent on how it's received Um, and if we're not receiving it in a way that's dignified that's respectful that validates and honors someone's experience and pain through it Mm. we're also then letting someone else who's thinking about and is yet to disclose um, let them letting them know that it's actually not a safe enough space right. to yeah. disclose. It's like silencing people. Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Indirectly. Yeah, yeah. And that was one thing we wanted to actually talk to you about as well. Just diving into some of those reasons why it's so hard for vict- victims to to come out. And you just mentioned a few of those reasons there. The fact that you know we tend to victim blame or question why it's taken 
you know, a woman or even, you know, men, um, so many years to come out and talk about their experiences. And then when they do, there's all these um, things that, oh, she's just trying to get attention, especially if it's um, a situation where it's like a power dynamic between a famous person. Like you see it a lot in Australia with, you know, NRL players and, you know, people in the media who've committed these crimes um, or allegedly, but then when women come out about it, it's like, oh, she's just trying to get attention or why hasn't it taken, you know, why has it taken her 20 years to finally talk about it? Yeah. Um, so obviously things like that will, will silence someone who who's facing the same thing and wants to come out, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's probably kind of three groups of factors that influence someone's decision to come forward. Mm. I think the first one is how they are coping and what their own choice, whether to take that brave step and speak out amidst all the other challenges that they may be facing in their life. And, you know, each survivor needs to make that decision on their own. Um, the second part of it is, I think, you know, what we've kind of touched on around victim blaming and community attitudes. Yeah. Um, it's things like, you know, what we read in the media around what someone was wearing, where someone was, yeah. should they have been there? Why did someone do this? If they didn't do that, this wouldn't have happened. Was there alcohol involved? Um, and I think the fact that it's a witnessless crime yeah, and the onus is on the victim or the survivor to prove that something happened. Yeah. And with sexual assault, it's not enough to prove that like a sexual act happened. You, you in court of law, you're actually proving consent, whether that was yeah. there or not, and that's the really difficult part. Mm. Um, so I think all that kind of layers adds to someone's hesitancy to come forward. Um, and I think it's also what. We now also from what we know now from research as well around perpetrator tactics. So when you have gender dynamics and power structures that support alleged perpetrators and perpetrators, um, they can be situations where the perpetrator might actually tell a victim, oh, this is not the way that this has happened. Yeah. You, I can't believe this is what you think mm. um, or no one will believe you, yeah. um, you know, and so they actively question their sense of reality. Mm. They gaslight them. It's like manipulating them yeah. in a way yeah. to, to manipulate the yeah. thoughts that the victim has had to begin with. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And when it's already an experience that often results in self-blame and a shame mm. response is, an, is, is experienced, there's definitely different factors that contribute to someone's decision to come forward or not. Another thing that's super alarming is, you know, as you mentioned, because the legal system is structured in a way where it is so complicated for someone to be convicted. I think in Australia, on average, it takes 40 weeks yeah. for a sexual assault offender to be convicted. Mm. Do you find that a lot of people might choose to kind of suppress what they've gone through or push it or, or try to push it back in their memory to avoid going through that process and kind of confronting it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think legally speaking, you know, our system doesn't currently meet the needs of the survivors. Mm. Um, I think we need to have lots more conversations and we need to have survivors' voice at the centre of it um, to have a better system that addresses it. Um, for yeah, Like I said, um, I think conviction rates are really low in Australia and I think it's probably low globally as well because it's it's a difficult thing to prosecute in courts of law. Um, I think for survivors, it's about weighing up whether 
they are going to pause their lives for 12 to 18 months sometimes um, and go through the process of giving statements to police, mm. collecting evidence, and then that coming to a decision from the um, DPP who determine whether there's enough evidence to go through to the next stage, which is the court stage. And even when you get to that stage, um, you know, it's less than 10% of cases where there is a conviction. Um, And even at the end of it, even if there is a conviction, a lot of survivors come out of it the other end being more traumatized or Mm. as traumatized as the assault itself because it has dragged on for much longer. And there is this, because the onus is on them, survivor to prove that a crime occurred um they then have to you know hold on to memories hold on to be in a state where they're able to recount what happened um and you know the process of cross-examination um that itself is traumatizing because reliving it it and you know the defense team actively challenging every single part of Mm. your behavior that night or what happened and although in a court of law that might be appropriate to ascertain the truth um it can be really invalidating and Mm. almost victim blaming to be asked about you know how many drinks you had what were you doing in that in the house in the first place um so that can be a really traumatizing process for many survivors and i think i think the whole question around what is closure for people Mm. and in counseling sessions it's something that we often talk about so even if you do get to the end of it and you have a conviction a lot of people still feel that there is no closure because it doesn't take mm. away from what mm. happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For some people seeking justice, that the process itself is closure, but for a lot of people, it's not. Yeah. Mm. As you said, um, you know, 10% of incidences go reported. And then in New South Wales, of that 10%, only 3% actually get convicted. So, you know, those knowing those numbers, it's so demoralizing yeah. and scary to think about. Yeah, mm. it is really scary. And I think those stats are scary, but I, I, I do think... You know, there's we. I mean, I don't have an answer of how to change the legal system. I think sure. it probably is looking at police reform. It's looking at how we look at um, what ju- seeking justice is. Um, is there justice that we can explore outside of court systems? What does that look like? Um, so overall, we know that sexual assault and sexual violence is stigmatized, you know, globally. Um, but looking at our South Asian culture in particular, there's even more stigma. I feel and that's why we want to put a microscope on the South Asian community in particular and talk with you, Nirajaka, on the reasons that perpetuate you know, sexual assault within our community. And by no means are we saying that these issues only exist within our culture. Yeah. We know it's prevalent everywhere. Um, we just want to focus on the South Asian community because that's what we can speak more yep. to. Yeah, I think talking about stigma is probably really important in this population. Um, I think it'll be good to look at that question maybe in two folds. So what we do and what we don't do um, to, I guess, perpetuate um, or to not be able to have more open conversations around it and and hold on to some of those thinking patterns. Um, I think in terms of the South Asian community, um, what we often don't do is the transparency to talk about some of these difficult topics. Mm. Um, we don't really talk about just even like sex. We don't even talk about what that, what is a healthy relationship, what respect is, what consent is. Um, so if we're not even talking about what's to be mindful of in a healthy relationship, how is someone able to have the tools to then identify what coercive control is, mm. what unsafe 
um, sexual act is or mm. what um, like how to label and having the language to identify when they've been harmed. Mm. Um, I think what we do is probably hold on to you know patriarchal or paternalistic value systems um, that still hold women to a role in our communities and families um, and I think women try and fit into that box where you can because it it reduces conflict um, and it's sometimes easier than to challenge it um, I think when you have when you don't have equality um, and equity I should probably say equity more than equality actually um, then you're creating situations where we're ignoring that power difference um, and I think sexual assault is always about power. It's never about the sex. Like, it's not the sexual act itself. It's, it's always about power mm. and someone having um, greater power over someone else, whether that's in a corporate setting, whether that's in parliament, whether that's in family homes, um, in our communities. So I think, you know, we need to talk about the gender dynamics and power as well and how we attribute that in our communities yeah exactly and I think a lot of it also starts with sexual harassment right and I feel like you know not just in our South Asian community but really everywhere being catcalled being ogled by men and the fact that it, it's not taught that it's that's wrong and that men aren't taught mm. that it's not okay to do that um, it almost objectifies women and then that objectification then leads to bigger issues like sexual assault that happens um, and I feel like you often see that you know even in movies like even in Indian movies and and things it's it just brings about that it's a culture that shouldn't exist but it it almost gives it space by you know continuously showing up in, in movies and in the media. Yeah. And to that, um, an example that comes to mind is how growing up, you know, something I've observed in my family circles is how girls are taught to dress a certain way because of how males will look at them, mm. right? So all the accountability and responsibility of how men are looking at them is put on the women. Yeah. But in our communities, we don't really have those conversations with young men about what behavior is wrong, like the examples that you were just sharing. So, yeah. so I think it starts with planting those seeds and what we're trained yeah. and taught from a young age. And that can lead to bigger gender role issues down the line. Yeah. And that also leads back to that idea of victim blaming, right? Or um, why was she wearing that? Mm. Or, you know, why was she drinking? Like all of that also ties back to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think look, it's really interesting in our communities how we hold standards differently for women versus men. Sure. I think it has been, you know, maybe I guess over the years it has been easier from the community's perspective to police what women do and wear and place the responsibility to be safe on them and it's not just our community I would say this is more generally um, mm. applicable as well whereas you know the conversations to be had around what are we teaching our sons what are we teaching our brothers what are we what kind of conversations are we having with our partners our uncles our fathers our community members those are probably tougher conversations mm. and I think sometimes when something is tough when something is difficult people find an easier way around it, which is let's just talk to the woman or the girls who could do something to protect themselves. But we're not really going to the root cause of the actual problem. 
yeah. we're kind of taking another way around it which is not foolproof you know you're, you're kind of saying well these people will continue to exist mm. try and avoid them if mm. you can don't wear this around them you know but you're, you're kind of saying well you try and protect yourself from that person but if it happens to someone else's daughter or someone else in the community then that's on them to protect so you're mm. not really changing the circumstances of a crime occurring mm. you're just making sure it's not happening to your family yeah you're just kind of accepting that this is how it is guys will be guys yeah. without challenging the narrative yeah yeah absolutely and i think we you know we have a long way to change the way we talk about women the way we talk about girls and i think going back to an earlier point romy that you made around you know it starts with catcalling it starts with you know locker room banter um you know those kind of what seems like it's harmless or less harmful than an assault um when you look at rape culture these are the comments that then lead to other behaviors resulting in rape or sexual violence at you know at like the top of that pyramid um it starts with these kind of catcalling the way we talk about people in our chats and social groups the way mm. we yeah it, that's where it kind of begins yeah i mean even when you go out you know just clubbing as a woman like being random guys coming up to you you know being grinded on like things like that it's like why is that okay and it's something that you just you kind of anticipate will happen and you just have to kind of deal with it but like why do, why does that even happen to begin with and then that gets reinforced in so many ways like yeah. in the media in our own experiences and not feeling i think as women you often feel that you don't have control over these situations and by speaking out and challenging it for example you're more likely to face something else that happens that's unpleasant or you're creating a scene mm. so you kind of just avoid and walk away which is something that i would probably do as well yeah. so i'm not advocating for anyone else to do anything but i'm saying we kind of avoid conflict and that's understandable in particular settings mm. um but like our responses as well can reinforce um you know the problem to continue and i think that's about getting to the root of that problem um mm. which is around how we talk about responsibility and accountability and what's acceptable as a standard you spoke earlier about patriarchal attitudes and gender roles but could you explain a little about what that actually looks like yeah um so i think when you look at patriarchal the role of um patriarchal thinking and how that maintains power to be resting with the male gender um i think it you know it goes back to traditionally women being the property of their fathers mm. and um at marriage being handed over to be the property of their husbands right. i think um in a patriarchal society it's how women's role um and as a young girl how you're socialized from birth um to kind of you know where um how you act in the home how we might think what a you know what a well behaved woman looks like not just in the home but in our community in our society um and what are some you know expectations that we have of her um and i think anyone that has challenged that status quo is labeled either as dangerous yeah. or the bad woman mm. um and i think you know we even see that in like movies mm. right of anyone that kind of steps out of line um maybe more recently we tend to celebrate them but it wasn't long ago and i think we still do it to a certain extent where um people like that are crucified um and that goes back to you know our understanding of gender roles and how we sustain those gender roles in cultural value systems like you know the woman is a nurturer the mother the person that looks after the household um whereas 
a lot of the other important decisions um, may be made by the man. Um, so that, you know, I think going back to, you know, the, the public space being occupied by the male and the private space being occupied by the female, that kind of distinction of responsibilities. Um, I think it's conversations around the image that we have in a um, patriarchal society of kind of the woman being um, protected and pure and um, the way that masculinity is portrayed in our community of like being, you know, strong, making decisions collectively. And do you think that sort of patriarchal way of thinking leads to some men feeling a sense of entitlement when it comes to women? Yeah, yeah. I think in general there's definitely um, the sense of entitlement that comes into play when it comes to sexual assault and, you know, the power Mm, dynamics, the ownership. Um, And I think, you know, what what we've seen with um, more recent cases where, um, you know, there is this, you know, especially within, um, for example, South Asian communities where those kind of age-old value systems still continue to play in how men can feel entitled to particular behaviors as that being okay because of the way that they've been socialized from birth Mm. um so i think it's about challenging not just the way that women are socialized from birth and from little girls but how men are socialized from birth to believe that something is theirs for the taking yeah and then you know speaking of gender roles and the type of um i guess that role of what a good woman in air quotes looks like um, I feel like that also plays a huge part in in that idea of a woman's virtue. Um, our culture puts such great significance on a woman's virtue and her purity. Mm. So it's almost like if she has been assaulted and her purity is taken away from her, um, she almost has to make a decision on whether to come out about it and make it known or just keep it quiet so she doesn't look tainted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there is, you know, going back to the point around women are responsible for their own safety Mm. um and when a woman is sexually assaulted for example um and especially in our communities where virginity is of paramount significance um and although we may not talk about it it's kind of implied Mm. um, in a lot of conversations or it's kind of expected um to be i guess of, of 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 value um so i think when an assault occurs um, it adds a more significant barrier to a disclosure because not only is that person making a decision to disclose an assault that will be really difficult to share and they're not sure of the community response in general, but I think it then creates another question around, am I damaged goods? Mm. Um, do, what hope do I have to lead a life with respect mm. or a dignified, you know, way of living um it might also mean that you know um prospective marriage um Mm. how that's impacted um family reputation family honor um how people talk about people who have publicly disclosed you know while we may celebrate big big names that we see in the media i'd be 
challenging how we talk about the people from our own community that come forward do right. we still hold them to the same standard. respect and standard and say wow that's really brave or mm. do we say hey did you hear about her yeah uh, do we kind of gossip about yeah. it so that kind of you know the double standards that we see someone in the media and we celebrate them and you know, from our community we may not be as you know celebrating mm. about yeah. them um so i think for women in our community there's a lot more to think about when they step forward to disclose something like sexual assault um, because of the cultural values that we have, that we still sustain, um, that could be a barrier for them. Um, And then we spoke before about sexual assault in marriages. Um, Obviously sexual assault itself is stigmatised and then divorce is also stigmatised in our culture so women don't want to leave because of the shame that that brings um, and then a lot of the time because of the gender roles in you know our communities women um, don't always have financial independence as well to leave like a toxic marriage um, obviously things are changing now in that respect um, and then I think even bigger than that is that whole idea of what will other people think which is such a huge thing in our culture which is obviously another big issue yeah absolutely I think I think when we look at you know, even going back a little bit, when you look at coercive control, which has received a lot of media attention in the last couple of weeks, um, it's something that almost kind of sneaks up on you because it starts off by things such as, you know, I don't want you to see your friends um, mm. because I really care about you and I and they're a bad crowd. Or, I, you know, I really want our money to be together. Can we just have a joint account? Um, so those kind of, you know, suggestions or um, things that can kind of begin what looks like to be quite innocent. and mm. and, and again, this goes back to, gender roles and how we are socialized and we're kind of socialized to think like men are protectors and men are Mm. um you know there to kind of look after us Mm. um, often and that can kind of fit into that narrative um of that um whereas what might be slowly happening is this power dynamic of someone um, exerting their power over you to control finances and that then becoming a a huge barrier for women of color um to you know and and just in general any woman to leave a relationship Mm. because they don't have the means um it's also access to services it's also language barriers um so there's a whole range of factors um as well Mm. yeah and you know more broadly speaking in south asia and in south asian communities we see all of this kind of manifest in um, things like hate crimes and caste related violence as well right you know mm. two two really big topics that we've dedicated specific episodes to you know down the track yep um especially with you know caste and casteism um but you know like it, it does manifest in these very ugly ways uh kind of more specific to south asia yeah you've touched on really great points around how sexual violence is used in hate crimes in caste-related violence, for example. I think it comes back to um, sexual assault being a violent act um, that is, um, that's used to humiliate and degrade Mm. someone. Um, I think we need to be mindful of the invasion that a victim feels. Um, not just of the body, but also of the mind and a person's, um, again, sense of safety in that community and in that society. So it's a power play on not just that person who they've harmed, but it's also an act that shows the rest of the population, for example, when it's a hate crime or a caste-related attack, Mm. that this will also happen to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. 
So when we were prepping for the episode, Rami and I were talking through, you know, all the things that we wanted to discuss with you, Nirja Akka. And, um, you know, I, I checked with Rami that she was comfortable with me sharing this. But she mentioned that when she went back to Sri Lanka on her last trip, she was just really aware of how men would look at her. And, you know, she felt that part of the reason that they looked at her that way was because, you know, they knew she was a tourist. But another bigger part was the fact that she's a woman. Yeah. Mm. So when she told me that, I wasn't surprised. But it's things like that, that as a guy, I'm not constantly thinking about. Um, but obviously, all, all women around the world, unfortunately, have to. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask, not only you, Nirajaka, but also Rami, was... As a guy, what can I do to help with this issue? Like, I have a few ideas, but mm-hmm. I need to catch myself and remind myself that it's in no way fair for me to make that assumption that I have the answers of what I need to do, right? Because I'm not in your shoes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, that's a great question. I'm really glad, you know, I think we need more men to take this up as their issue as well because they need to be part and parcel of conversations and solutions um i think just going back to what you're saying about romi's experience going back to sri lanka you know there's been a lot written about the male gaze and Mm. the objectification of women Mm. um and especially because i think a lot of women i can't think of a single person who will say i've never been looked at differently or you know someone's eyes haven't made me feel uncomfortable um in terms of the things that you can do, I think I think as a guy, I think we need to challenge conversations that are locker room banter. Mm. I think we need to, you know, the things that we would, we might just uncomfortably laugh and be like, oh, there's always that one random friend that makes those inappropriate jokes. Um, how do we challenge that in a way that, you know, I, I believe in challenging things that don't cause a shame response in people because I think they're shut down. I think mm. even kind of saying, hey, that wasn't cool, man, like, or that's really weird thing to say and just like saying it out aloud um like the standard that we set in what's okay with us and the conversations that happen around us is the standard that you're willing to walk past and if that's not okay with you like speak up I mean these are your friends and I think it's being allies to women Mm. it's having conversations where it's you know letting survivors especially take the lead in telling the rest of the community and society what actually helps and what doesn't um it's being there for our friends and making sure they're okay like if you're seeing a situation where someone is intoxicated and someone you know there's someone random or it just doesn't look right or feel right say something Mm. um you know it's okay to have an uncomfortable situation and apologize for it later then not raise something that just doesn't feel right. I think we all have a responsibility to kind of look out for each other because we know how common these things are and we know that alcohol and particular situations can make people a bit more vulnerable. Um, Yeah, and being just able to have an honest conversation and being there and checking in with people um, if they are disclosing, you know, believing in them, giving them choices about what they would like to do next, um, all of those kind of things really help totally agree with you just calling out your mates you know when they're bantering in air quotes about something that you that you know is totally inappropriate um and I think listening as well if you know a woman comes out I mean not even just someone you know but even in the media if someone comes out about a situation where they've been sexually assaulted not just dismissing it or victim blaming or saying she just wants attention and you know things like that I think just 
really makes men also an, an ally, like like you said, Nirajaka. So, yeah, totally agree. Um, so taking a step back, as a counsellor, what sort of programs do you execute to women or men, anyone really who comes forward about um, their sexual assault? Yeah, so my role at RPA is twofold. Um, first part of it is we have a service for assaults that have happened in the last seven days where someone can come in, have a crisis response from a sexual assault counsellor as well as a medical doctor where a service that's available 24 hours, seven days a week for the whole year. And it's about um, if someone wants to collect evidence, um, that option is available to them to come into the hospital, to come into emergency. And a sexual assault counsellor is always there to complete a psychosocial assessment and link people in with counselling support. The other part of um, that role is, is to provide ongoing support for not just recent survivors but also it could be that someone was assaulted six months ago six years ago 30 years ago and Mm. now they're ready to engage in specialist counseling supporting their healing um i think it's a service that we are lucky enough to have in australia where it's part of the public system it's free it's a free service even for international students so we always encourage people to kind of reach out it's confidential Um, And I think it kind of is provided in a space that is trauma-informed. So there's lots of focus Mm. around giving them choice, making sure it's a safe environment, them deciding whether they want to go to the police or not. Um, That is not a decision that we make. Um, We empower clients to make those choices Mm. for themselves. Mm. So for anyone listening or or just in general, um, what would be the first step that you recommend for a victim to seek help? People often may not reach out to the professional service first. Um, They might reach out to a sister, a friend, a family member. Um, And sometimes it can be really helpful to have that safe person um, listen, um, validate the experiences, Mm -hmm. um, remind them that they're being really courageous in sharing something like that, that what has happened is not their fault, um, that they believe in them, Mm. um, and to kind of ask them, look, what would you like to do next? And how can I be part of your support system as you kind of take the next steps? Yeah, you're not alone. You you really are not alone. And I think you have a choice. And I think it's about giving them the choice because in an assault, people often feel really helpless Mm. and losing control. So how do you give that control back and allow Mm. them to take the next steps? If someone would like to seek counselling support for example Um, depending on where they live there's a sexual assault centre that will be available in their area they can call and speak to someone who's usually like an intake counsellor who's able to support with that Um, if the crime happened in New South Wales you also have victim services under the Department of Justice and Communities. Um, they provide up to 22 sessions of counselling for free. Mm. Um, but if the crime didn't happen in New South Wales, then another option might be to go through your GP, get a mental health care plan and see someone that might specialise in sexual assault. Um, in terms of more recent assaults, usually people present to the emergency department and then they then notify our team. Um, and we go out to provide a counselling medical forensic response to them. Mm. People can also um, contact telephone counselling as well, which is confidential and free. Um, They can call 1-800-RESPECT or they can call Lifeline 131114. What about for someone who's a friend or a family member? What can they do to support a survivor? I think it takes a long time 
for survivors and victims to come forward. And I think each person kind of has their own journey through it. Um, we can't really make anyone do anything, although you might be really wanting that person to seek support. They might just not be ready for it. They might have other factors that are playing a role in them determining that now is not a good time. I think the only thing that you can do is be present, be in their lives, um, hold that space for them to talk about things when things are tough, be non-judgmental. Mm. Um, you know, often people shut down when they feel that someone is getting angry at them or they just want them to do it and they're disappointed in them. Mm. I think it's about keeping communication channels open that when and if they are ready, that it's a conversation they know that they can have with you. And as a way to wrap up the episode, what are some catalysts that you've seen in our society to help address this issue? Yeah, I think we have to recognize the role the Me Too movement had um, in us having more open global conversations around sexual assault. Um, I think it changed the way we saw sexual assault as being committed by bad people um, and it was always like a violent act. I think it really brought to the foreground of the power that that exists, that structures support um, in order to for these kind of crimes to go like to be swept under the carpet. Mm. Um, I think Me Too movement allowed women who are survivors to see other women come forward yeah. and say, yeah. "Hey, this happened to me too." And you're like, "But you're successful. You're really confident." Um, are you, you know, are you sure you're a sexual assault survivor as well? But it, it kind of created a common narrative to identify with for women that it, it it's a global issue. Um, and you never know who has been sexually assaulted. There is no formula to identify yeah. just by looking at someone because just because you've been sexually assaulted doesn't mean you're mentally unwell you can mm. still go on to lead what appears to be very normal lives mm. but people don't know each other's stories so it created like a collective sense of being part of a bigger group that i think shifted the power mm. from traditionally where the power remained to kind of collectively challenging that and i think we you know we've seen that in how you know, advertisers have backed out of, you know, radio hosts when comments have been made. Mm. Um, we've seen the marketplace change to recognise the role that everyone plays in maintaining those power structures. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I was reading an article and in that um, there was a photograph of, of someone in India who'd gone to a Me Too movement protest um, and uh, she was holding a sign and it said, um, one woman coming out starts a revolution. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's what the Me Too movement did because, you know, in terms of the power play as well, there were big actresses and, you know, actors coming out and saying that they'd also been yeah. assaulted. So it just gave that way to... I guess everybody to yeah exactly yeah. to come out yeah and I think it it, it it probably a number of things that have come together obviously sexual assault has been around as being as an issue for years and decades um and obviously Tarana Burke has a, an activist in the U.S. she kind of started that grassroots movement to talk about that within communities and I think it you know the timing of it is when Elisa Milano kind of posted that Twitter mm. um, which kind of took off so I think we're in this age where there's social media there's stories that are able to be shared in you know a number of characters um, people are able to in real time contribute to conversations and mm. I think the how we hear voices the systems that 
used to prioritize white male voices have shifted as well. And mm. I think that's part of the trend where we're seeing a lot more variety and diversity in the narratives that we hear today. Yeah, for sure. Any closing words for our listeners near Jaka before Robbie and I share our recommendations? Yeah, just to, I guess, you know, we're having like a, a really overdue conversation. Um, I think I really love that way of talking about this a lot more and it's created lots of opportunities to hear different stories um, in the media lately. Um, I think it's about encouraging people to speak up um, if they feel comfortable to look out for friends to be there when friends disclose and to support one another to take out the judgment and to kind of accept that this is much more common and much more mm. prevalent in our communities than we think for sure yeah um, thanks for that Nirajaka. Uh Rami what's your recommendation for our listeners this episode so my recommendation, I have a couple for this week, um, but one is a TV show called Unbelievable on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um, it's about a young woman who faces a sexual assault situation and nobody believes her. And she's just going through court cases and talking to people about it. Um, I won't give too much away, but it's a really, really great show. It's not lighthearted at all, but I would highly recommend you watch it. And for our I guess, South Asian listeners, um, there is a really great Hindi movie called Pink, um, which is about how no means no and that whole idea of consent. There is also a Tamil remake of that movie as well. So hit us up if you want to know where you can find that. How about you, Sandin? My recommendation is for all guys. You know, we have such a big role to play with regards to this issue. Let's all make sure we take the time to listen, to understand and think about what changes we can make. Um, and hopefully that will allow us to contribute to this conversation more and play our part to change the narrative. Well, Nirajaka, thank you so much again. This has been a really great conversation um, and we hope it helps spark some conversations um, with some of our listeners. So we appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nirajaka. I learned so much and please do come back on the show. We'd love to have you back to talk about your PhD thesis looking at PTSD and trauma in refugees. So, you know, please keep your calendar free for us. <laughs> sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you all once again for listening to today's episode. We hope that discussions like this, in our little way, help to start the conversations that will then change the narrative. Once again, please remember you are not alone. Contact 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 131114 for more support. As always, subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform, share this episode and show us some love on Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcast. See you next time.